Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Well, if you would, grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. You know, Miss Lori, I prayed all those years about and fussed about how I did not like my curly hair. And God said, I'll show you. I won't turn it straight, but I'll turn it loose. <laughs> and, uh, that's what God has done for me. All right. And my kids remind me every day, especially my 14-year-old, about how less, how much less hair I have now than when, uh, than he, when, he, when he was born. But of course, part of that's his fault too. <laughs> So grab your copy of God's Word. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I love the United States of America. And one of the reasons that I love it is that it's so diverse. So diverse. Every single geographic region here in America, it has a particular accent and a dialect and a set of phrases that are shared in that region. How many of you all would say that you're not... How many of you guys would say that? Oh, wow, about half the room. Wow, that's amazing. That's, again, that's one of the things I love about Eastwood. Eastwood's a very diverse place in that regard, all right? But I am from the South. Now, I did marry someone not from the South, and I went to college out of the South, and so I got made fun of a lot, uh, particularly when I was in college for the way that I say things. But down South here, we've got these special dialects, these, these particular set of phrases that, um, that really show that, that uh, sort of that Southern culture. Phrases like, bless your heart, <laughs> you know, depending on how you say that, that could actually be a, a phrase of sympathy or a phrase of mockery. Y'all ever use it in that way? Or uh, phrases like, um, well, I swanee. That's one, that one, that's one basically means um, that when you hear some bad news or you're frustrated, it, it's a polite Southern way of swearing. And my great-grandmother, man, she'd say, I swanee. All the time. And if she got some really bad news or she was really um, aggravated by something, she'd say, I swanee my time. You know, she'd throw that in there. <laughs> or how about the phrase, you mom and them? Uh, that's a polite Southern way when you meet someone and you want to see how their family's doing, you throw in there, how's your mom and them? Or for the Southerner, who, uh, Southerner who's not really sure of the answer to the question that you've just asked him, you might hear him say, well, I reckon, which means I think what I just said is right. I don't know. But for the person who's getting ready to do something, she's fixing to do it. I'm fixing to make y'all some sweet tea. But the Southernism that came to my mind this week as I read through our text, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, was the phrase, well, shut my mouth. Now, we might not be down deep enough into the South. Uh, uh, you know, brother, brother Gary, it might be more of a Mississippi or more of an Alabama, Georgia thing, right? But nevertheless... It's Southern through and through. It's a classic Southern saying, which basically means I am shocked and I am speechless. And when it comes to God's grace, that's a good state to be in and the appropriate state to be in. God says here in Ephesians 2, 9, that we have been saved in such a way that no one can boast. That no one can can boast. God has left us speechless. Well, shut my mouth. Let's take a look here at our text, Ephesians 2. I'm going to invite you to stand to honor the reading of the Word of God. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 is our text today. The Word of God says this, 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus ends the reading of the word of God this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and ask that you would speak to us through your word. We fully believe that your word is inerrant. It it has no error. That it's infallible. It'll never be surpassed or proven wrong. That it is um, authoritative. Every word that it says, we should believe and we should do. And it is sufficient, God. Everything in this is enough for us. But God, your word is not just meant to be understood and to be read. Your word is meant to be lived. And so I pray, God, this morning that you would help us to do that. We would read your word and then live your word. Father, I want to particularly pray right now for the man, woman, boy, or girl who has never turned and trusted Christ as their Savior. Father, we pray that today, by the power of God, that they would hear the call of the Holy Spirit. They would hear the invitation that I'm even sending out right now, Father. And the Holy Spirit would call them. They would say, yes. They would gladly come to Christ today and be saved, Father. Just move in our midst, God. You are so good to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, grab your seat right there. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 7 here in chapter 2, and we saw how God overcame our past, He upgraded our present, and He enriched our future. And there at the end of Ephesians 2, 5, right in the middle right of what Paul was saying, sort of out of nowhere, Paul exclaims emphatically, by grace you've been saved. And here in verses 8 through 10, Paul wants to go back to that idea. He wants to go back to that idea and he wants to to dig deeper. He wants to expound on that idea that your salvation is by grace. He wants us to focus in on the extent of God's saving grace and the purpose of God's saving grace. So that is our task today. Here's today's task. We're going to answer this question this morning. What is the extent and the purpose of God's grace un? To salvation. And let me say this if you'd like to take notes digitally, you can find the sermon notes online on our Facebook page, the Eastwood South Campus Facebook page. There's a PDF there, and you can pull that up if you'd like to have these notes to, to work along with you or to read along with you to help you take notes this morning. So, what is the extent and the purpose of God's grace unto salvation? First, we're going to look at the extent here. And here's the extent I cannot boast in myself in the least. In other words, God's grace is so extensive that I cannot say a word about myself. I cannot take credit for any of us. For those who are in Christ, we have absolutely nothing to brag about in ourselves. Look how in verses 8 and 9, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. As I've studied God's word, I don't know if I can find or I can think of a single passage in Scripture 
that more emphatically or more clearly explains the dynamics of our salvation. How have you been saved? Is it by grace or is it by faith or is it by works? Notice the prepositions in our text here. When you read the Bible, prepositions are very important, particularly in Paul's writings. Prepositions will tell you how it all fits together. It's got all these different puzzle pieces and the prepositions show you how they link up and how they fit together. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Okay, so if you flip those phrases around, it becomes even more clear. You have been saved by grace through faith. So church, as you understand the word of God this morning, grace is that thing that saves you. Grace. God's grace. Unmerited favor from God. It is divine love being poured out on an utterly undeserving people. God saves you. But how does that grace get to you, right? God saves you by grace. But how does that grace get to you? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. So God's saving grace comes to us through faith. Now, to be specific here, it's not faith in faith or faith in this general, um, you know, amorphous thing out there, this force out there. It's faith in Jesus Christ, you'll see it all through Ephesians here. It's not faith in faith, it's faith in Jesus Christ. So grace is the thing that saves us. And faith in Christ is the conduit to which that saving grace flows to us. Now to help us really understand what Paul's talking about here. I want you to look at the lights in this room for just a moment. You see the lights glowing here? They're all around us. Glowing. These lights shine by electricity through the power grid. Think about that for a moment. Notice the prepositions. The lights shine by electricity through the power grid. So electricity is the power or the force that lights up these lights. If we go hit the breaker and cut the electricity, the lights go out, right? But it's the power grid or the electrical grid that gets the power from the electric plant to these lights. And guys, it's the same way with grace and faith. We are saved by the power or the force from God called grace. And that grace comes to us from God through faith. And when that grace hits us, we shine in salvation. Now, in a lot of minds, as you think about this, a lot of minds and, and, and notions of the dynamics of salvation, there's sort of a division of labor that a lot of times we get in our mind here when we read this passage. And we think about faith. Oftentimes we apply this idea of a division of labor. Grace is what God does, and faith is what we, graces, we faith, or we believe. But God, through Paul here, he wants to be clear that there's no division of labor here in the dynamics of our salvation. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. What he's saying here, guys, is that none of it is our own doing. All of it is a gift from God, even the faith, which makes sense when you consider where God says you and I were before we came to salvation. Oftentimes, guys, we'll take the Bible and we'll break it up into little bitty bits and pieces and we'll get this piece and, and we'll forget that it's connected to an argument that's being made already. Last week, he began the argument there in chapter 2. And where did he say that we were? We were spiritually dead there in Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We were spiritually dead. And since faith is a spiritual act, spiritually dead people don't spiritually act. Therefore, even the faith that is expressed in Christ, which brought you to saving grace, is a gift from God. We know that grace is a gift by definition, right? By definition, grace is unmerited favor. It's something that you've not earned. If it's grace... If you've earned it, it's not grace. So by definition, we understand that grace is a gift. But now we know from this text that faith is also a gift. Pastor John MacArthur, he describes this gift and he illustrates it so well when he writes this. He writes, when we accept the finished work of Christ on our behalf, we act by the faith supplied by God's grace This is the supreme act of human faith, the act which, though it is ours, it's primarily God's. His gift to us out of His grace. When a person chokes or drowns and stops breathing, there's nothing he can do. If he ever breathes again, it will be because someone else starts him breathing. A person who is spiritually dead cannot even make a decision unless God first breathes into him the breath of spiritual life. Faith is simply breathing the breath that God's grace supplies. I love that. It is all a gift from God. To help us understand it even better, think about how the Bible describes our salvation. Elsewhere in the Bible, our salvation is compared or paralleled with birth and creation. Jesus says that our salvation is a rebirth in John 3, 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if salvation is a rebirth, and it is, How much did you contribute to your first birth? How much did you contribute to your first birth? Whatever year that was, mine was in 1980, right here at Hospital Hill here in Bowling Green, right under the president's water tower. How much did I contribute? Absolutely nothing. And that's how much you and I contributed to our rebirth. But Paul also says, Paul says, on top of what Jesus says in 2 Corinthians, 
5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if salvation is new creation, and it is, how much did you and I contribute to the first creation in Genesis 1? And the answer is absolutely nothing. And that, my friends, is how much you contributed to your recreation in Jesus Christ. And so for these reasons, our mouth is shut. Our mouth is shut when it comes to boasting in ourselves. As Paul says in verse 9 here, Ephesians 2, 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Beloved, God's grace is so extensive that I cannot boast in myself in the least. Now, professional athletes, man, they are some of the hardest working people on the planet. And yeah, they were born with amazing gifts, but they worked hard to hone those gifts and to elevate those gifts, and they compete hard to come out on top. However, they're usually pretty self-deprecating. They're usually pretty humble when it comes to speeches and to interviews, but sometimes they speak what's really in their heart. And that happened back in 2003 when the future Hall of Fame basketball player Carmelo Anthony, when he gave a speech after receiving an ESPY award. He had just led the Syracuse Orangemen to the college national championship that year. And then that acceptance speech, Anthony added an unprecedented person in his thank you list. Here's what he said. He said, and I also want to thank myself. <laughs> I put a lot of hard work day in and day out. And we, well, he wasn't wrong, was he? He wasn't wrong. I mean, who says that? But he wasn't wrong. Over a decade later, Carmelo, he explained to radio host, uh, radio host Dan Patrick about his thinking on that speech. And here's, what he, here's how he explained it. He said, you know, you get up in those situations and you want to thank everyone else. Sometimes you forget about all the people you want to thank. But people never thank themselves for putting in the work and going through all of that. Sometimes you have to pat yourself on the back. And truth be told, Carmelo Anthony had put in a massive amount of work in. He had, no doubt. And he does deserve a pat on the back. But when it comes to our salvation, there's no place for patting ourselves on the back. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, for who sees anything different in you? Here's the question, guys, that drives this home. What do you have that you did not receive? If there's anything that you have that you did not receive, then pat yourself on the back. Doesn't matter how little it was, right? Whatever it was, if there's anything that you got that you have now in Christ that you didn't receive, pat yourself on the back. That if you made that happen. But look at what he says. He continues, then and if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, everything that you have, salvifically speaking, you have received from God. And there is nothing for you to boast in concerning yourself. Prior to those questions, Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, 
He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows that which is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows that is, uh, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that, listen to this, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Beloved, that's the only person that we should open our mouths to boast in, God. That's how extensive God's grace is unto salvation. It is 100% by grace, every single bit of it. But here in our text, we not only learn about, how, about the extent of God's grace unto salvation, we also learn the purpose, the purpose of God's grace unto salvation right here. And this is the purpose. I must glorify God through good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the purpose for which you were created in the beginning and recreated in Christ Jesus. So if you're taking notes, we could sum up our passage this way. Again, paying very close attention to the prepositions here. By grace, you have been saved through faith for good works. Let me say it again. By grace, you have been saved through faith Purpose statement, for good works. That's the reason that God has saved you. The purpose is that we do good. In other words, that we we live godly ways. We live good ways. We do godly things. And these works like our salvation, he says here, was prepared beforehand. God in his grace even prepared the good things that we are going to walk in beforehand. That's the extent, again, coming in there of God's grace in this. Now, we're not going to go into great detail this morning on what all that entails as far as the good deeds that he has prepared for us beforehand, okay? Paul's going to spend a lot of the rest of Ephesians explaining that. So we're going to get into that as we move through this, uh, through this book, okay? But Jesus sums up the good works when we think about Jesus and Paul coinciding here. Jesus sums up our good works that we're supposed to do in these two phrases. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. Right? Those are the two big categories of good works that we're saved unto. All of the fruit that comes out of our salvation, that grows out of our salvation, falls into one of those two categories. And by these good works. We glorify God. As our text says here, we are His workmanship. We are His craftsmanship. If I were to say the name Leonardo da Vinci, 
Would that name ring a bell? Absolutely. He is arguably, by almost any, any measure you would bring up, the most famous painter in the history of the world. Um, when, you think about, when you think about records, Da Vinci holds the record for the highest price ever paid for a painting, and he also holds the record for the highest valued painting in the world. Okay, so as far as the highest price ever paid. Look on the screen here at Leonardo's Salvatore Mundi. That is Leonardo's Salvatore Mundi, which in Latin means Savior of the world. It's a portrait of Jesus Christ. In 2017, that painting broke the record for the highest price ever sold or ever bought in terms of a painting. It sold in 2017 for approximately $400 million. One painting. One painting, $400 million, highest price ever paid. But as for the highest valued painting ever, guess who that belongs to? That, that belongs to Leonardo da Vinci as well in his painting, The Mona Lisa, which you're very familiar with. And I know some of you have actually been to the Louvre in Paris and you've actually seen this. How many of you guys have actually seen it in person? I see several here who've actually seen it in person. And the thing I always get back is, that's it? Nevertheless, it is the highest valued painting in the history of the world. It's on permanent display there at the Louvre in Paris. And since it's never going to be sold, it, it's actually considered priceless. But in 1962, the Mona Lisa was assessed for insurance at the price of $100 million in 1962. Now, this is 2020, right? Like, what, 60 years later? When you, when you count in inflation, the Mona Lisa for insurance values is, is assessed at $850 million. $850 million. But when people see Salvatore Mundi or Mona Lisa, they don't just marvel at the work of art. Although it is marvelous, it's amazing what Leonardo da Vinci was able to do. But they don't just marvel at the art. They marvel also at the greatness of the painter, don't they? How many of you guys have ever met Leonardo da Vinci? None of us. But how do you know he's great? Because you see his great works, right? That's how you know that da Vinci was great. And I say to you this morning, in the same way, in the same way you and I are to live our lives, in the beautiful way that God created us to do and then, re, then recreated us to walk in. And when we do so, we glorify God who made us so. We are living works of art. And by God's grace, we live up to that. Otherwise, we fall short. But by God's grace, we live up to that. Now, listen, right now I know there's a lot of ugly in the world right now. A lot of ugly in the world. And, and I, I've been away at, at, at uh, Fall Creek Falls State Park for the last three days. I don't even know. I, I've been disconnected. I, I've tried not to check my phone, read my email, read my news feed. I don't even know all the ugly that's going on right now because it changes every day. It's probably increased since I last 
read the news. And pressures are all around us from all sides to divide us and for you to do everything but love. But I beg you, church, I beg you, push back against your flesh. Push back against the desire to identify with any other group more than Christ. Push back against this, this pressure so that you can love everybody. Just yesterday at the Cascades swimming hole there at Fall Creek Falls State Park, there was this woman who had it on a t-shirt that said this, it was big letters, said, love thy everybody. That's who your neighbor is. Love thy everybody. And right now, let me say this to you. We're going to talk more about this next week. You have an amazing opportunity to glorify God by showing love and walking in the good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. That's the purpose for which you were saved. That's the purpose. This morning, some of you need to begin to walk in that purpose. In other words, I'm calling you this morning, I'm inviting you this morning to turn from sin and trust in Christ. You have never received the grace of God because you've never expressed faith in Christ this morning. So I invite you today, if that's you, if you've never been saved, I invite you this morning to turn from sin and trust Christ. If you hear the Holy Spirit calling you this morning, Give your life to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. That is God moving. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Receive God's grace today by expressing faith in Christ. Cry out to God right now. If you're watching on TV, on your computer, or if you're right here in the room, pray to God even now. Tell him that you know that you're a sinner. Tell him that you know that Jesus is the Savior who came to die for your sins. And then tell God that you're turning from that sin and you're placing your hope in Jesus Christ alone. And beloved, you will be saved by grace through faith for good works. Here's my final prayer this morning. May your thankfulness and joy rise along with every ounce of credit and glory to God. <laughs> Shut my mouth. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact 
that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live, and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us. And I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.